This is the Moving Iron Podcast, the only podcast for ag equipment dealers by ag equipment dealers. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 12. On this episode, I'll be joined with Bryant Robertson, remarketing manager at East Coast Equipment. Bryant, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks, Casey, for having me. Yeah. Hey, before we get started, um, I like to get a little background on everybody and, and the dealership they work with and... and um, Go ahead and give me a little background yourself and, and what East Coast Equipment's history is. East Coast Equipment started in 2005. It was a merger of six independent John Deere dealers that were adjacent to each other. They came together to form what is still a family-owned business. We have 13 locations in southeastern Virginia, northeastern North Carolina, and central eastern North Carolina. All six of those original dealers are still involved in the business. Uh, they basically make up our board of directors. We have a basically we have a board, a series of board of directors that our president and our regionals, as well as I, respond to. Um, we have three regional managers that cover four stores apiece, and we have a small ag and turf manager. Um, our president Brian Dobson, he actually grew up in the business. Um, his family is actually one of the owners of one of the dealerships. Um, so it's, it's been a really, really nice experience being involved in a family business. Um, they treat their employees really good, and they treat the customers even better. Uh, as far as myself, I started in the business here in November of 2016. I had been in the auction business for about 23 years. I started with um, in auctions. I grew up on a family farm, first and foremost. Um, my dad was a farmer in Chawan County, North Carolina, right on the coast. Grew up on cotton, corn, soybeans, peanuts, um, Irish potato farm. And then at the age of 13, I started getting involved with some of the local auction companies. <clears throat> um, started working from the ground up. I went to NC State University. At that point, um, after four years, I was a crop production major. During that time, I went to auction school, got my auction license, became a licensed auctioneer in the state of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Um, I stayed in the auction business up until September of this year, of this past year. Uh, I was highly involved in the export market. Uh, we exported cotton pickers to France, Haifa, Israel. Australia, Greece, um, as well as other tractors, did some combines. Really enjoyed that side of the business, but as a kid, I kind of saw myself being in a dealer situation in a more rounded sales position. Um, the opportunity came up in November. Uh, East Coast had been discussing adding a remarketing manager. And they wanted somebody that had experience in used equipment values. So I was approached and asked if I would come in and be the remarketing manager. I accepted. My wife and I, we were living about three hours away. We moved in a matter of about seven days. Uh, sold our house, came down here. <clears throat> and that's the story of, of how I wound up with East Coast Equipment. Yeah, sometimes those jobs just kind of pop up, and you you don't you don't see them come. But that's a uh, that's that's a great great background there. So, 
being in the auction market like you've been, um, your probably your perspective is probably a little different than a lot of guys' perspective is. Um, how do you see the in your local area? Are there a lot of local auctions that are affecting your business, and and how's that? I mean, how, how are you dealing with that situation? North Carolina, Virginia. Um, <clears throat> This region in here is a little bit different than a lot of areas. We don't have your typical consignment sales, kind of like Missouri and South Carolina, Georgia. Um, the yards really don't exist. Richie has actually put a yard in our Durham area, which is kind of midway to state on 85. But that's really one of the first ones that's really been established here. So we don't have that pressure of a regional, quote, a regional auction. A lot of our auctions either are financial related, retirement auctions. I do see this past year was, I expected it was going to be a little bit above normal. And it was, it was slightly above. We didn't have a great overpouring, but there was a different mix this year. We did have a few guys that retired that didn't have sales. Um, they tried things a little bit more differently. And I will say that that kind of impacts that local market a little bit, little bit more because the equipment, instead of pouring out over a large area due to an auction, it poured out over a small area. Um, the auctions themselves, I don't think really affected us greatly. Um, a lot of what was being sold, and as you would know, Casey, there's there's several categories of used equipment and there's several categories of used equipment buyers. I did not see that A and B market having a lot of sales, which is your lower, your lower hour, higher horsepower, newer, a lot of times John Deere related equipment. I didn't see a great deal of that this year. A lot of what we saw was was your C, your D, your E, and in some cases, F equipment being sold. And that equipment's always going to seek its level on its own. It's not going to bring what it would have brought retail, but the equipment being sold was not something that would have been sold in a retail situation for the most part. Now, there were some tractors sold that I thought were really good deals this year, and they probably did cause us a sale from time to time. I do know of one case where we lost an 8235R sale. Which that was to lose an eight market is that's pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I think that the sales didn't greatly impact us, but they didn't they didn't help us either. Uh, I do see. I don't think the ball has dropped yet. I think there's going to be some more sales as we come into the fall. I think there was a little bit of hold back. I don't think quite the reset button is hit. So I'm watching this very carefully. I do try to, even though I've stepped into the remarketing position, I am trying to consistently keep my eye on the auction market, what's being sold in our back door, what it's bringing, because ultimately your customers are looking at that too. So we're trying to make sure that we know for a fact, yes, that track brought $80,000 or no, it brought 10, it brought 10 and they said it brought 15. Um, just being aware of what's going on around us is the main thing, what I'm trying to do right now. All right, Brian. So let's talk a little bit about your crop mix now. So, um, being in the part of the world you're in, I know probably corn and soybeans and, and cotton and, and tobacco are probably going to be your, your, your staple products, but talk to us a little bit about 
you know, the crop mix that you service and, and then how you go about looking at those various products and, and the equipment that you use to, to, to harvest those, plant and harvest those crops? We have a pretty unique crop mix. Um, we have a few things that are very unique to our area. Um, yes, we do have corn, cotton, soybeans, wheat, grain sorghum, but we also have some Irish potatoes, um, as well as we have clary sage, which clary sage, this is the only area that clary sage grows in. Um, clary sage is a stabilizer for like tied laundry detergents and it's basically it was a alternative to the um, what they were using with the sperm whales. Okay. Um, they, um, but also we have sweet potatoes. We do have tobacco. We have a lot of produce in this area. Um, so far as equipment wise, a lot of our some of our equipment is so specialized it's hard to really get a fix on it. Um, there was already established areas for that. And then you have, like, with a special like with tobacco, we're a C&M dealer. Um, those transplanters have really revolutionized that business. Um, with Clary Sage, air planters, a John Deere air planter, 1720, 1725, has been a good fit there. The only thing we've had to adapt to is we've had to, where traditionally we were not a forage area, um, we have had to become a forage area. Um, we do have some eight, like 8,600, 7,000 series operating in our area now, as well as wind rowers, um, specifically for the Clary Sage, because they want it they want it cut a certain way, they want it processed a certain way. Um, the key with those units is is that it was a good market at a good time. That market has kind of shrunk a little bit, so. We're not going to have as much activity on that side as we have had in the past. Uh, with tobacco, a lot of our tractors, um, if you'll notice, we have a lot of two-wheel drive, 6,000. And when Deer was producing the 7,000, we had a lot of two-wheel drive, 7,000 series tractors. The tobacco guys really like those units. Um, and then there's you've, you've got several... There's several smaller, like specialty crops being grown in our area. So when you look at your, so you have you have the the stores you have, um, and I'm, I forgive me, how many stores did you say you had? We have thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. So you have thirteen stores, and I'm sure is there is it pretty dynamic across those thirteen stores as to how the crop mix looks, or is it pretty evenly yeah. spaced across everything? No, it it fluctuates pretty steadily across our entire um, AOR. Um, our Wilson store kind of experiences the Wilson Nashville Rocky Mount store. They kind of experience most of the tobacco. Um, we do have some tobacco at our Washington store. We don't have a great deal coming out of our Edenton store or our Hertford store. Um, they're more cotton, corn, soybeans, but they have actually, they were blessed with the Clary Sage. So they, they're doing something different than what our stores with tobacco are doing. So it kind of, it, it leveled out to where they actually both have high value crops in their AORs. Okay. So does that, the, the diversity in your, in your, uh, 
and your crop mix across your stores, does that give you a lot of ability to move, you know, maybe from south to north or north to south or east or west or where you can have the migration of that late low hour stuff into a into an area where they're they're looking for that five, six hundred hour tractor and that three, four hundred hour combine? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of that internal. Um, the issue of it is a lot of that has slowed down with the economy. And, you know, a lot of our guys have kind of backed up and buckled down a little bit. They're making do more with, with what they have. They're putting a few more hours on it. Um, we have some guys that traditionally would trade at 1,000 hours, but now they're trading at 2,500 hours or 3,000 hours which is good for them, but at the end of the day, we're looking at a 2,500 to 3,000-hour 8R series tractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the same thing, too. Our shop, our parts and service business has really picked up as because of that, and we're seeing a lot more guys that have a, you know, a later, an earlier model, uh, like 8360R or something like that, for example, that are now coming in with 2,500 to 3,000 hours, and um, guys are debating if they even want to trade it in or not. You know, so that's that's where we're at on that same situation. Um, so how has uh, leasing equipment, how's that affected your business? The leasing has helped stabilize the transition between the guys that really don't know what they can do or they need an, an extra option. So it stabilized out that and made a happy medium there. Um. The lease returns, you know, like I say, they've sta- they've kind of stabilized out. But we've also, one thing that I like about the leasing is the fact of on some of these John Deere lease returns, it produces that 1,000-hour tractor that you can purchase that typically would not be in our area with the way things are going right now. Where our trades are being in the 2,500, 3,000-hour range, if a guy wants a thousand hour tractor, when JD has the lease returns come in, being able to purchase that thousand hour tractor and turn it over and sell it to a customer has been really beneficial to us. Yeah, we're uh, we're finding that leasing equipment for us has, has really been a uh, easy way to transition that cash flow conversation. That's right. You know, guys are looking at how they can save save a dollar here and at least. And at least fluctuate some cash into different parts of their business. And I think leasing's given that flexibility to a lot of guys, um, especially with some of these guys. The the way machines were uh, purchased uh, two three years ago, with at the height of the of the economy, the way it was, there may or may not be equity there for them to even to to, to bring in uh, to the situation. So leasing's kind of helped bridge that gap a little bit. I think exactly, and that's that's <clears throat> what we that's what we have seen and. You know, we've got so we've got some guys that love leasing, but we've also got some guys that love having that tractor and knowing it's theirs and and being able to physically have have it in their possession. Uh, but we do have some guys now that are going towards lease, and then at the end of the deal, they're ready to go ahead and purchase it, um, which has it's helped us out in the long run too, especially. One thing I've seen is, and what I like about it is, if you want to turn a customer from red to green, leasing has been a very good way of us doing it. Yeah, it's, yeah, the it's cost easy operation. 
way. It's an easy way to slide into the operation. Yeah, and it's it really helps that cost of operation story too. When you look at trade differences and all those different things that come in there, it's that leasing thing makes it makes it pretty nice. That's right. Makes it pretty nice. Um, so you know we've got we just kind of got through one EOP. Of course, we're in the second phase of, of sprayers and, and planters. Um, how how is your sprayer market look? I mean, for us, we look at those those. R series sprayers, especially like an R4038 for us. Um, we're a CAD dealer, so those those machines coming in <clears throat> are going to be, you know, anywhere from 800 to, to 1500 hours, you know, when they when they bring them in after a couple of years of, of running them, and even some cases a year running them. Um, it really feels like to me that those those machines are selling faster um, than machines on either side of that, that range. And, right. um, I think it's, you know, a pricing thing more that's driving that. You've seen something similar in your marketplace? We are. Um, for us personally, the R-Series sprayers have been a very, on a new side, we can sell an R-Series sprayer. U side, R-Series have been very slow for us to make that turnover. They've been extremely slow for us to turn over. Um, what I'm seeing is the price point you know, we our supply is fairly low of what we have right now on hand, but also the demand of what they're looking seems to be that older sprayer. I'm not I'm not really seeing these guys jump out and want to buy an R4030 or R4038 readily. Will they buy them? Yes. Are we seeing it trending back up? Yes. Uh, I think. As we get closer to the end of the year, guys start seeing a crop. I think that's going to completely flip-flop and change. I think some of the older sprayers that we sold previously over the last 60 to 90 days, I think we'll see them come back and we'll see those those sprayers turned into R-series sprayers. But right now, I'm, just, I'm not seeing a high demand on either side for any hour R-series sprayer right now. So what uh, model? What model do, are you seeing demand for? Uh, low, low hour, clean, forty-seven thirties, forty-six thirties. Um, now if it's a narrow forty-six thirty, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing that demand for narrow forty-six thirty. I actually had coming in in November. I had three narrow forty-six thirties. We sold them. We did well on them, but it took some time to process them through. A good, a good wide forty-six thirty is bringing a good price here right now. But one thing I'm seeing too, and has been very key, the ones we're selling and the use sprayers we're selling right now, the customers are getting very particular. They're wanting to know where it came from, who had it, how it was run, what it was run in. Uh, um, some of these guys do not want a sprayer that's been running cotton. Guys running in grain, he doesn't like a cotton sprayer. Um, just because of the abrasiveness on the tires and the other parts of the sprayer. Just from the cotton stalks. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, we're seeing a little bit active. I mean, it's we're still, for the most part, very flat, but there's a slight 
upward demand on that 4730 4630 there's from talking to some customers you know you could possibly i'm seeing where we might possibly get an r-series moved but it's going to be later in the year uh once they start seeing some crops coming in What's driving that behavior other than meaning the crop price, obviously, but I mean, um, Our guys had some bad years here the last several years. So it's just a cash flow situation more than anything. It's a cash flow situation. We've got a lot of guys that can, they've been able to weather the storm very well. We've got some guys that have weathered the storm, but have, you know, they know they have some issues and they're, they're kind of waiting to see, well, can we overcome these hurdles? Can we move forward? And what can we do to make our situation better? Right. Uh, we've, We've got some guys that are trying to, that we've actually downgraded from an R back to a 4730 because they let some land go. Maybe we had over probably about a six year period, we had a land rent war where land rent prices went completely insane. So, Sounds familiar. yeah, so, couple, so coupled with crop prices, And a land rent war that went from land that should have been going from <laughs> $45, $65, $85 an acre was up in that, I heard from $125 up into the mid-200s on yeah. some land. Yeah. And Yeah. it just, it really put some guys in a in a situation where they bought enough equipment and they bought equipment to handle that land, but now that they're starting to have a step down a little bit, they're making some changes. Um, some of the land was not as good as they thought it was. So they had to back down and make some changes. They might've let it go, let it go. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing those guys kind of backing down a little bit. They're, they're taking a step back. Do I see them coming back forward? Yes, I do. I think, I think that we're starting to improve, but, By no stretch of the imagination are we at the point where the reset button has been pushed and we're going to be back happy days. I don't see that anytime soon. Um, they're going to have to be very cautious. Yeah, we had a few guys that did that and kind of stepped out of there a little bit. And um, I think they're, you know, they're, they're feeling a little a little crunch. But I think overall, most of the time, <clears throat> for the most part, it seems like, um, you know, I don't know that there's any, you know, most of that's cleaned itself up uh, for us. So there's still some guys out there paying, you know, high rents, kind of carry over contracts and stuff that they'd signed two, three years ago. kind of keep Well, that so we'll see what yeah, happens and, and, and from the personal side, um, being that I grew up on a farm, I am a landowner. Um, I'm still experiencing that. man what you And it's, you know, we're not as irrigated. You would think we would have more irrigation being we're closer to the water. Irrigation is just starting to catch on here. So a lot of a lot a lot of the guys, some of the land that a lot of these guys were renting is flat, dry, dry land cotton, dry land corn land, and they were paying a premium for it, and it's it 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 has caught up, and it's still catching up. Um, I'm gonna say we're probably 
for lack of better terms, we're probably behind you at this point so far as playing catching up with some of our guys. Yeah, so we'll, we'll have to see how that works out. I mean, I think it's going to affect the, the land prices overall. You know, we'll start probably seeing some slight decline in, in land pricing around us anyway. We're seeing that, but, you know, where that goes, who knows. Um, right. But we'll just... It's one of those things, man. It's one of the part of the it's part of the cyclical nature of, of agriculture. Well, and, and you're right, and like I say, it plays it plays into all these things that we're discussing from the demand on sprayers, demand on combines, demand on planters. I do see it getting better, um, but it's we're we're kind of that's that's what's causing some of our flatness right now. By no stretch of imagination are we not selling sprayers. We're selling sprayers because uh, you had a lot of smart operators out there, but you've also got some out there that would, under other circumstances, be be buying sprayers, be upgrading, but they're not. Yep, I understand that. So here we are knocking on the door of I'm getting the combine order of writing period opening up. Um, mm-hmm. What does your current combine market look like and um, – how is your used inventory of combines look? Our combine inventory right now, I'm very, I feel very comfortable, but at the same time, I do feel a little plush with them. Um, I'm not as worried about my older combines as I am my S series. The seems like it takes a little bit longer to wash an S series out versus something like a ninety. 670 or 9770 and that's only because of price point um there's a slight market for that but again it's there's still you have one or two guys and that's it you, it's it's going out there and really getting the salesman to go out there and work the guys and finding the guys that are willing to step up and go ahead and buy a combine um so far as new combines, I do think we'll sell some new combines. Um, and there will be some trades associated with that. We've sold a couple S690s over the course of about the last couple months um, that were used. And those were guys that they were very recession-proof themselves. And they they had the money. They knew They knew what they were... It was kind of in their plan that they were going to upgrade and move to a larger combine. Um, so that's good. The some of the com, some of our used combine market right now on our older combines, I'm seeing a unique trend, and that's it's not necessarily our dear customers that are taking some of our older combines. It's that case. It's that case. Um, um, farmer is that new holland farmer that's trying to transition over so i'm seeing some of that right now because i actually we just traded a 9570 for gentlemen will still run a tr 98 yeah <laughs> yeah so you're getting some of those yes yes there's some sales going on but also you're having to bring in a few older trades which most likely you'll have to wholesale but there's still a market out there for some for a good cheap clean combine. Yeah, I've looked at more New Holland combines in the last probably four weeks than I have in probably in the last eleven years that I've that I've been doing this. Seems I like agree with 
those guys are just, I mean, everyone's looking, you know, to, to find that deal. And, and I think that they're just whatever they can do to, to, to help increase their cash flow or put themselves in a better situation. Everyone, whether it's green, yellow, red, silver, doesn't matter. They're all well, at, looking. At the day, <clears throat> if I, you just hit on a good point there, Casey. The, the key word is deal. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what these guys are looking for. They're looking for a deal, but they're also looking for a machine that they know is going to last them for the next several years. Um, some of them have kind of rode through this last couple of years on the unit that they had. They're starting to have a few problems with it. They don't have the financials to go ahead and step up and get a new machine. So they're stepping in and getting that comparable something that's within their price line, but also something that's more dependable. And, you know, deer has a good product. Yep. Yeah. They've got a, yeah. Guys just, just trying to find that, that situation that best fits them. Absolutely. Okay. So we've hit on a few machines here. Let's, Let's talk about your used equipment process and how that looks, you know, high level view of, kind of how, how does your from start to finish when you're going through a, a looking at a deal and evaluating a piece of equipment all the way through your marketing uh, of that piece how, how's that work out at east coast and, and how are you involved in that well basically when i was brought in and set when november our the way our setup is structured the salesman is your of course your key point they meet with the customer for the first time the customer says well i'm looking at trading in uh 8420. Well, the salesman will take pictures at 8420. He'll go through, he'll do a general inspection himself of what he sees. We do a ride and drive. Uh, We try to be very hands on from the salesman level, making sure that that unit is what we think it is. Once the salesman has inputted into Machine Finder Pro, we have our three regionals. One of them will actually, the salesman sends it to the regional as well as myself. The regional will look at the unit and try to put as good of a price as they feel like we can be to be competitive within reason. And then I look at it from my perspective of, number one, what would it bring on a cold, hard day if I put it on an auction? What is that what is that unit worth? And then number two, what is that unit worth to us on a retail side? What do I think it'll bring retail? Most of the time, the regionals and I are pretty close together. We've we have really tried to work together and format that process to where we feel comfortable between each other. If if I see something because I'll probably, a lot of times I'll go out and I'll go look at the piece myself, ride, drive it myself before we make a deal to make myself comfortable. Um, as you know, when you're, when you're dealing with a salesman, some salesmen have a tendency to oversell. If I see that, I become more involved. But if I see a salesman that's really putting it down and showing the initiative, if there's, we look at everything from the hydraulic valves 
right on around. We we put everything in to that evaluation, and then we put in well, what is important to us? What's going to be important to that next customer? How how can we make this tractor? If if it's something very minor and it's not going to bother like tire condition, or you know maybe there's a cut in the cab kit. If that's something that's not going to crucially damage the image of that tractor, we may put it in the back of our mind, but we go ahead and we kick it out, and then we we produce something a little bit a little bit better. But overall, at the end of the day, we use experience from the gut knowledge, and it's kind of a two-way check system. Uh, once that's done, once the deal is made. Um, any unit, low hour unit, we go ahead and we do oil samples, fluid samples. We really check that unit out. Sometimes you have a good deal, sometimes you have a bad deal, but we want to make sure that if we're putting a unit out there that should be a very good unit, we want our customer that's going to be buying that unit to have the assurance that he's buying what he thinks he's buying. Um... And and that has worked out very good for us because if you know if you if you send a tractor out and something happens within the next couple of days, you should back it up, and we do. Uh, we're very customer oriented. We and our customers know that, so they buy with comfort when it comes to that. <clears throat> so when you look at your the value of the machine. Who, who, who's the person that actually says, okay, this machine we're going to retail, advertise this much, and have maybe a cash price or whatever it is, and then your final book value? Who, who's the person that goes through and, and puts that number on there? That comes between myself and our regional manager that's handling that um, salesman. That's, okay. All right. So you guys have a collaborate on that number and come together. We, we, with collaborate, kind of a, on that, yeah. we collaborate on that number. Um because there's always strength and there's always strength in numbers, and it's a lot of times it's it's as simple as sending me an email and saying, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking." Yes, no, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take any extra time out of my day. It just gives a little bit extra insurance. You know, well, I saw on this tractor that one of the tires was twenty percent. Do we want to account for that? You know, in this deal, and going going from that perspective but 90 percent of the time it comes down to most time it's it's between myself and the regional to determine where we're at and what we're going to do on a unit yeah so when you're looking through the the inspection process do you have are there certain machines where maybe a technician might go take a look at that unit before uh you you actually do the physical trade or, or is it all just the sales guys going out and taking a look at it? We very seldom send a technician out unless we know historically the unit has had issues. Mm-hmm. If we know historically that the unit has had issues and we pull up the warranty report and it says, okay, this has been worked on in the engine here, this has been worked on in the engine there, yeah, we'll send a technician out. But for the most part, it's part of that relationship with the customer of 
you don't want to you don't want to do so much that the customer feels like you're questioning every move he's making as well mm-hmm. and questioning what his equipment is worth which we are but at the same time you know for the most part i feel very comfortable with having my knowledge of the auction industry seeing i've seen it from the roughest to the best and knowing that you know there's a lot of things that can go on, but most time it just we just rely on what our sales force is willing to put in it. Right. That's pretty much how we do it too. For a minute we had a we had an inspector that worked for the sales department that looked at combines and we were kind of branching out to some different stuff, but I felt like that worked pretty good for us because we were able to um, really control the reconditioning process from the from the evaluation process all the way through uh, getting it ready for market. And right. we had a pretty good idea of what we had coming in and um, definitely had a had a just a better control overall of when you working with the with the shops as far as how what we were going to recondition, what we weren't going to recondition. We used the Machine Finder Pro um, well, all the inspections and stuff. All of our reconditioning and our inspections come directly through me. Uh-huh. Um, when we go look at a combine. 90% of the time on combines, I will go with the salesman even on the first visit because two eyes are always, two sets of eyes are always better than one set, especially on a combine. There's so many things that can go wrong. Uh, there's so many things that can be overlooked. We do have, once the combines come in, we do have them run through the shop and inspected. Uh, we do take the inspection report. I sit down myself, go through it. Um, if there are major issues, we'll sit down and talk with the myself, the regional manager, and our president to see at what point, how much do we want to do. We want it to be a really, we want it to be a good combine, a good product going out, but at the same time, we want to be within reason and making sure that we convey to the customer that is potentially purchasing the combine, well, we did this. These are some things that might possibly need to be done to the combine to make it feel ready. You know, honesty has always been the best policy with us. It always helps. It always helps. Surprises aren't nearly as surprising. That's right. (laughs) I I have no problem, just like with our 9570 we just sold, I laid the inspection report out. I told the customer, I said, well, this is what we did. This is what we kind of saw as, you know, something that could be could be done, but it wasn't necessarily the most important thing that we saw. You know, our eyes versus the shop size was two different things. Mm-hmm. The shop, they're looking at what can we turn into cash. We're looking at does it need to, is it, normal typical wear or does it really need to be done yeah and and that's very important yeah yeah when we look at that that's that's the one thing i try to to really drive home when we're looking at something is that we really want something to basically last you know a season of use which is for us about 200 separator hours is a typical average season of use for us so we're looking at something if it won't go 200 hours we want to fix it you know if it will go you know, theoretically go 200 hours, which nobody knows if it will or won't. You know what I mean? Um, you can put a brand new part on it and fail tomorrow. But I mean, um, there's, there's just that whole, 
you know, driving that kind of behavior into our shop. And, and I think we've gotten there. I think we're working pretty well with that. But um, yeah, we've, we've done the same thing. And, and our guys, I will say we have a good group of guys and they've really taken on and harnessed that, that, you know, we got to look at this from a company perspective as well as from a customer perspective. We want it to be the best it can be, but we also, we don't want to rebuild a combine either. Right. That, that is such a, such a fine line between the, the two, the two factions that you're dealing with, you know, the sales department versus the, the, uh, the service department. And we've trained the service department to go out and fix things that are broke. That's what they're looking for. Every time they see something out there that is marginal, they're going to fix it because that's what they want to do. They're, they want to take care of the customer, make sure it's going to work well for them. Right. Um, on the other hand, we're trying to fix as, the stuff is the best we can to make it go out and work as cheap as we can. And that, that's the dynamics that we're, that we always kind of give and take and, and the flow uh, between the two departments. And, and um, the service department, in my opinion is, is my best friend because right. they, you know, way I look at it is our sales department can go out and sell the first one, but our service department is going to sell the next 10. And that's going to be a, a, a part of, we need a good solid communication between the service department and a good solid um, relationship between the sales department and service department and it's just you can't you can't have a battle every time you go in there and do that so no that's <clears throat> one thing we've tried to really drive home with our guys you know with our sales guys you know a salesman likes to have it right then mm -hmm. this is what I'm working on this deal I gotta have it right now you know go in talk to your service manager, say, can you help me with this? And do you have time to do this? Don't, I need it right now. And the better relationship they build between the service and the sales department, you know, the less issues you have, the, the better things function and work. And, and our guys are really good at doing that. And that's part of what, what I do on our youth side is when the, used equipment comes in, I work with our service managers to say, this is what we need to do. Do you see I'm going the wrong way? Is is there something you see that I don't see? And what do we need to do to come in, come in on budget, still make the unit a good unit? And if we can't do that, what do we need to do to make it a good unit regardless of how it affects us? Yeah. So how does your, you've gone through the reconditioning process, you've gone through the evaluation process, looked at the reconditioning, done all that stuff. What are you doing to uh, get something ready for, to push out to market? I mean, how does that, how does that process work? Basically, basically we are right now, we're still redefining that process. We're trying to work better with that process. Um, I've made a lot of changes over a period of a couple months. A lot of it has to do with once that unit has been cleaned, prepped, washed, gone through the shop, is it at the right dealership? Is it in the right area for the most part? What can I do? Every, every piece is different. You know, a large combine is different than a smaller combine. A large tractor is bigger than a, is different than a smaller tractor. You know, you have to you have to kind of 
look at the pros and cons of each one of your dealerships, it may start at the dealership it was traded into, but it may wind up 200 miles north, 200 miles south. Um, we focus a lot into trying to get, when you come to our website, putting it on the website, see the pictures that the salesman took will be different than the pictures you see once it comes on. I re-photograph everything when it comes to a combine tractor, any of our equipment, once it is ready for sale, it's all re-photographed, all the specs are re-verified, and once that is done, it's put out on the internet, it's put out on our website. Now, I will say, I believe in pictures, pictures, pictures. You know, if a man is sitting in Iowa and he's interested in a unit that is not in that area, but we have it, I want him to be able to close his eyes and somebody read him our description and him be able to physically see that unit. But also, I want him to be able to look at the pictures and I want him to be able to see everything he needs to know about that machine through those pictures. Yeah, I'm, is, I'm a big big guy on um, pictures too i mean that's important you can have a, a super nice machine out there and if it's got um uh, if the pictures are bad on it it's it's just you, pictures it, tell uh, the story yeah your pictures tell the story to get dirty is my philosophy yeah no i i agree with all that so yeah you gotta you gotta i always tell them you know, on the description part you know two or three sentences of, of, of whatever your sales pitch would be if someone first called you on the phone and what that that's, would look like, you know? That's right. The always shedded thing gets old. Hard, yeah, that's hard to get a salesman to do from time to time, but we, we try very hard to get them to do that. Um, just like with all of our, a lot of our used equipment now, if you call one of our tractor house ads or you call one of our fast line ads, your first point of contact is me. Um, I deliver 90% of the time on our ag-related items. I deliver that first sales pitch because I've seen it. I believe in it. And my goal is is to help that sales help that salesman make that sale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I think that's uh, all that stuff so important to, to just know where you're at and what you're doing and, and how that whole thing works. So kind of close in closing here, let's take a look at the end of the year and kind of what you see happen in your area and then kind of what you think is going to happen across the, you know, the whole macro level here across the United States. So when I take a look at 17, I see there's going to be some, uh, I think there could be some positive retail stuff towards the end of, of 17, just because the way of the way some crop prices are shaping up. That being said, there is a lot of uh, either too much water or not enough water in a lot of places. So that's going to, have a have a damper on on overall yield so who knows how things are going to shape out even though prices are good there might not be um that overwhelmingly good of a crop in some areas to to kind of counter counter set that so um i think for me i think the combine market the used combine market if you have those late and low mile stuff that you have an opportunity to sell some of those things um and i think the same way with with you know maybe some tractors and even some used planters and stuff like that going into the end of the year um but at the same time i, I always kind of worry about 
how much debt these guys have to service with with uh, coming off the years that we have and maybe catching up on some things and how much of that money they're going to share with us that they were going uh, instead of the bank, you know. So um, kind of worry about that. But I think I'm fairly positive for the end of the year. But I still I still uh, I guess cautious cautious cautiously optimistic about how the end of the year looks. What about you? Well, I think I think you hit it pretty close to home. I I'm very cautiously optimistic as to how this year is going to turn out. The guys are seeing a good crop right now. Um, however, we do have we've had a very as you put it, we have had a very unusual weather year. Um, it's either been too wet, too dry. We are entering in for us. We're entering into hurricane season, which a good strong hurricane can either motivate or destroy a market. Um, if we have a good corn crop, hurricane comes in, it could possibly motivate some combine sales pretty fast. Um, if the crop prices continue and we do have a good yield, which I do believe we are going to, um, I'm thinking that there's a lot of chances for a good some good retail sales here towards the end of the year but i'm also very very optimistic as to our used inventory we're coming into the fall of the year with i feel like we're very good in, in our position so far as the amount of inventory we have we're not coming in too heavy we're not coming in too light yes we're lighting a few things we might be a little bit heavier on combines that I would like entering into the year, but we're also entering in to harvest season. Um, entering into harvest season a little heavy on combines doesn't scare me as bad as entering in too light and not having those units to to sell if we needed to. Um, do I think we'll have sell some of the combines we've been holding on to for a little while? I think that possibility is there. So far as our overall market for the end of the year, the the market I'm looking at right now, I think there's going to be some changes. I think there's going to be some face changes so far as some of our customers. Um, I think some of these guys are taking a real strong look at what they've been doing over the past couple of years. Some of the guys that have been strong retail guys so far as new retail, I think you're going to see them transitioning either 50-50 over to some of our used market, which will be good in a way because that will kind of level the playing field as for our used and our new. And, you know, like you know, Casey, your a lot of your money is tied up in your used equipment. <laughs> and being able to move that used equipment is just as important as being able to move the new equipment. Um, the one thing that does scare me, and you and I had talked about it previously, is um, some of these equipment, some of this new equipment, the price that's coming out, especially with the new S7s, that does scare me a little bit. It's, um, and could impact our new sales if we're not very careful. Yeah, my my uh, my thing with the price of new equipment is that the price of new equipment's always been a point of contention. Whether it was a you know a ninety six hundred or an S seven hundred, either one, there's always been that 
point of reference in the time that you're at. I mean, oh my gosh, we're paying we're paying eighty grand for a new combine now. I mean, so that's there's always been that point of contention. Where my point of contention with with the marketplace is is especially in this market that we're in is that the way that you're going to have to trade for the used one and those dollars mm -hmm. that you have in there, even if you even if you trade for a hundred thousand dollar difference on a new combine with three hundred hours on it or, or whatever that number comes out to be. Um, man, you're, you're, you're still looking at a combine that's going to be a $350,000 combine or a $300,000 right. combine. And the customer base that you have that can buy that 300 or $350,000 combine is probably the same customer base that you have that can buy the, the 400 or $450,000 combine. Exactly. And that's you know? what I'm doing. <clears throat> yeah. And which one are they going to go for first? They're going to yeah. go, most of the time these guys are going to go for that new combine. Yeah. If they can afford a new one, they're going to get a new one. If they can afford a new one, and then what I'm looking at as well is they can afford a new one. Well, I've got a $350,000 combine. i got a $450,000 combine. Okay, well, here's my problem. I'm going to have another $350,000 combine coming in. Yeah. And where is that unit going to go? Yep, and that's, that's what, you know, I think we have kind of a reverse effect of what we saw happen in, in 2000, you know, I mean, what I saw anyway in 2000, I would say nine through 12, where on farm income was so high that the guy was trading in his 50 series combine on a brand new 9770, you know what I mean? Or an S670 or something like that. Um, they were jumping over so many series of units to get to that, to where they were going. Um, just that middle section of, of machines was just completely almost a, a ghost land for, for a lot of, a lot of different dealerships. Now we're seeing that same thing now where the guys want to buy that 9770 or buy that late or that earlier model S uh, S6 series machine. And now we're, you know, we don't have that as many guys coming to the table that can buy that one or two year old late and low hour machine. Well, and we saw that as well with combines and especially with cotton pickers. Uh, we had a lot of guys that kind of, when the module pickers came out, they went from 9965 9, four row machines to six row 7760s. And there was a lot of jump over during that time. And, and I agree with you. I think we're going to do a little bit of a reversal on that. Yep. So it's always fun, man. You We, we can sit here and we can talk about speculating on that stuff, but you don't ever know if you did the right thing for six to nine months or even a year sometimes before before you really actually see if you did the right thing or not. That's right. So that's what makes this job fun. You never know. It's, it's, you never know. You never know. So, well, Brian, I feel like we've got a pretty good handle on uh, East coast equipment and yourself and your processes that you use. So um, I appreciate you being on the podcast. And before we go, do you have any uh, parting words or words of wisdom about to everybody on the interwebs? Well, just, um, any of our any of our extended dealers, if you ever need anything, if you're ever looking for a piece of equipment, um, I'm always shouting out to some dealers looking for a piece here and there. But if you ever need us, feel free to look me up at eastcoastequip.com, and um, you can follow us on Facebook as well. Good deal, man. Well, good. That's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Bryant Robertson of East Coast Equipment for being on this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, 
Let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour.